Can a Christian worship God using music from a church or a writer with unbiblical teachings? That's a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I am your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, though it is a mouthful, it is a good one. Can a Christian worship God using music from a church or writer with unbiblical teachings? This question has really started to catch momentum over the past, certainly months, maybe the past couple of years. Um, And the way that I am familiar with this question is because I've heard it asked uh, several times at this point. I've seen it uh, posted in um, some Facebook groups that I'm in with other Christian leaders. And it's always this idea that... uh, the, the worship leader typically has brought a new song to the worship team uh, or to the pastor or whoever, said this is the new song that we're going to do, and the lyrics of the song are just fine, but it comes from a questionable source. Uh, and, and so if it comes from a questionable source, whether it's an author or a church that has questionable theology, Does that mean we should no longer sing that song because the author or the source has some questionable um, theological practices? A couple of things to lay down first. I recognize uh, and will teach and have taught and will continue to teach that worship is how a person lives their life and is an all-encompassing aspect of who we are as Christian people. Uh, That said, because this discussion is talking about music, there's a very good possibility that I am going to use musical worship and music interchangeably. Uh, I understand what worship is, but just because I'm trying to get ideas out, I might just call it worship. I hope you understand that I'm talking about music that happens during the service and how we sing um, as a part of our worship. Um... That said, let's let's jump in and let's start dealing with some of this and um, get into some specifics. Uh, theology is a really big deal to me, and theological soundness is a very big deal for me. I have a bachelor's degree in theology, and it's something that I care very deeply for. Um, being correct about the things of God is something that is of great importance to me, and I believe it is something that should be of great importance to most Christians. One of the reasons that I believe that is that when I read the New Testament, I see a tremendous amount of the materials in the New Testament being there to correct false doctrine and bad teaching. A lot of what we have in the way of New Testament writing is dealing with and correcting bad teaching, that there were absolutely false teachers 
that uh, the apostles were needing to correct. There were absolutely cults like the Gnostics that were trying to steer people away that needed correction. And so I think it is very important to understand not just the theological importance of things in today's context, but in the full history of Christianity. There is a dirty word that is often labeled people when they care about theological nuance, and that's legalist. That is, that is the death sentence for a lot of Christian circles, is to label someone a legalist. Uh, and, and how you get that title oftentimes is not by being a legalist, but by caring about theological correctness and nuance. Uh, a legalist, for those of you who are wondering how I am using this term, is talking about somebody who cares more about... Uh, so Paul gives us a really good the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. Um, the legalists are the people that pay attention to the letter of the law and not necessarily the meaning uh, or the big picture behind what was written. And so they go into Scripture with a magnifying glass and really only focus on getting the rules right and forget that those rules are supposed to point to a relationship. The Pharisees and the Gospels are great examples of legalists. When, when Jesus is confronting them with their seven woes, he says you do right to tithe even on your spices, but you forget the more important things like justice and mercy. So they were, they were even when they went to the market and they got some salt or something like that, they would give 10% of their salt to the, temp, to the temple, so good job on that. You just forgot about the bigger things. So a legalist is how we label somebody that is overly concerned with the rules and is separating themselves from the important matters of God, like justice, mercy, and they've separated themselves from the relationship. And this becomes a shutdown word when somebody starts to bring up things like truth or theological correctness or anything like that. They just get labeled a legalist, and boom— they now have to, they now have to shut down and go. Oh, I'm not a legalist, and and now their argument can't hold water. Well, this this is something important because we are talking about theological soundness, and what we see in Scripture is the the need to fight for theological soundness. A lot of circles today would call Paul a legalist because he was so concerned with theological correctness. They'd call John. They would also call John and Peter uh, legalists because of their approach to trying to make sure that things are just right. So theological soundness and being taught uh, good theology, which I have an entire podcast on what theology is, um, so I'm not going to go into too much on what is theology. I encourage you just to go listen to that podcast if you're not totally sure what theology is, but it's basically the things and study of—it's the study of God and His things. So theological soundness is of huge importance in churches today because we see it modeled as of huge importance in the New Testament because of the important place that theology holds— um, in church, it should not be a surprise that we need to care about the theological correctness of the songs that we're singing. Most church services that I have been to are are easy. It's easy to break down that it's you know 
forty percent, well, maybe forty-five percent singing, forty-five percent preaching, and then you have ten percent of offering and prayer and those kind of other things. But really, the two big ones are preaching and singing. That's what we're doing during a church service. Everybody would agree that we need to be theologically accurate and sound during the preaching, because that's really what preaching's supposed to be, is talking about Scripture, talking about the things of God, and being accurate in our instruction in that area. Well, we can't give a free pass to music just because it sounds good or it sounds cool. It has to, our music also has to reflect theological accuracy because these aren't just words that we're hearing. These are words that we're saying. These are acting as a, a musical form of prayer. These are declarations of our belief. A lot of theology comes from how we're singing. Um, and, and so it's of vital importance that we make sure that the songs that we're singing have theological accuracy as well. So that really does start to get us now, our, our minds wrapped around this idea of can we use music from a church or from a person that has unbiblical teaching? Well, I think there's a couple of things to consider. And before we get into those three things to consider, I just want to point out the elephant in the room. Every single time I have ever heard somebody ask this question, they are talking about Bethel. Just straight up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it what it is every single time over the past few years that I have heard somebody ask this question, they are talking about Bethel every time. I don't know if the person who's asking this question is specific about Bethel because um, they didn't say so, but uh, every other time that I've heard this question asked, Bethel has come up, so we're going to talk about Bethel just a little bit. For those of you that don't know, Bethel Church is a church in Redding, California. Bill Johnson is the senior pastor. Uh, his wife's name is Benny. Uh, his associate pastor's name is Chris Vallotton. And um, Bill Johnson has written several books. Have, when Heaven Invades Earth is kind of his his main one there. Uh, Chris Vallotton uh, is the, the main teacher at a supernatural school of ministry. Um, and, but here recently, over the past couple of years, uh, Bethel Worship has been producing some of the more popular contemporary worship songs uh, that churches are singing. Uh, Bethel's been around for a long time, and they've been singing music for a long time, but for whatever reason, they, they just kind of hit their stride, and churches have been finding Bethel and singing Bethel's music here recently. Um, and when they start to do a deep dive on the theology and practices of Bethel, they start to get a little concerned. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this, uh, because I think it's worth mentioning, but every list that I have found of, of quote unquote heresies of Bethel, um, or, or questionable theological practices of Bethel, um, Except for maybe two of them, uh, the problem that most people have with Bethel is they're charismatic. Just, they're not especially weird charismatic, they're just charismatic. 
They believe in healing. They believe in miracles. They believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. They they absolutely are a charismatic church. I don't think they've ever had to they've ever tried to hide that fact um, at all. Uh, but one of the things that is happening, um, which is really interesting in the worldwide church right now, is how charismatic churches are becoming. Now, a lot of people would get really uncomfortable with me saying that, but I'll say it like this. Um, In church history terms, most eras of the church or centuries of the church are marked by some significant changes. Uh, A really really easy one to talk about is the 16th century, so 1500 to 1599. that's the that's the big Protestant push right there. And so that's that big marker for that century. The 21st century, um, so that's the 1900 to 1999, the way that historians are starting to recognize and the way that they're starting to classify that century in Christian history is a charismatic push. It's where the charismatic church essentially, when it essentially started, it's when various charismatic churches really started to take prominence. But one of the things that we're finding now is that one in four Christians in the world have charismatic roots. And these charismatic churches, because they had influence in radio, in publishing, in TV earlier than most other Christians did, have had a lot of influence and impact on the culture. So there are a lot of churches that may not be theologic or may not be theologically charismatic, but in practice, kind of are. The, the raising your hands, being overly emotional, or not overly, but being expressive and emotional in worship, using uh, new songs that were created uh, very recently. Um, these are all these are all charismatic things. These are all charismatic things. Um, and a lot of churches have started to adopt some of the practices of charismatic churches, but not necessarily, some of the theology of charismatic churches. I don't really want to dive into the full history of charisma. However, it is pretty interesting. So if you'd like me to do a podcast on the history of the charismatic movement, please send me a question to questions at donmckag.com. It'd be a really fun one, really fun podcast to do. Um, but essentially, the the defining characteristic of charismatic churches, and this is going to include some uh, you know, word and faith churches as well, but this is going to include some Pentecostal, some Church of God, which there's a lot of Church of God denominations, um, Assemblies of God. So a couple of these kinds of denominations, one of the defining things, and several non-denominational churches too, by the way, is they believe in a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and through that baptism of the Holy Spirit, a Christian person now has access to supernatural gifts, healing, miracles, speaking in tongues. This is this is kind of, if I need to summarize it all in a very like on-the-nose way, because there's a lot of nuance and all those kinds of things, but it's there's, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's an experience after salvation, and from there, uh, miracles uh, are now accessible to everyday Christian people. 
So the the thing that is shocking to me about the the bad rap that Bethel gets is though statistically what we're seeing is one in four Christians in the world have some kind of charismatic rooting in them. A lot of other churches are starting to take on charismatic practices, not necessarily the theology. When people look at Bethel and get all up in arms about it, they're just a pretty mundane, charismatic church. I mean, if you go to any charismatic church, they're probably going to have really similar belief systems to Bethel. The thing, I guess, that kind of throws people off is that they are very famous now, and a lot of people are singing their things, and so if you're in a church tradition that's not charismatic, and you've been singing their songs, and then you realize, oops, they're charismatic— uh, you start to get into an issue. And I don't mean to burst your bubble, but so's Hillsong. So's Elevation Worship. So's Carrie Job. So's Cody Carnes. So's Planet Shakers. So's The Belonging Company. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to just rain on everybody's parade, but most of the, of the contemporary music that is coming out today is coming from churches or people that have charismatic leans or are just straight up charismatic. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to throw everybody under the bus. I'm trying to put things into perspective. Now, I have seen some things about Bethel that I would say are not within mainline charismatic teaching. Uh, and, and there's, there's, you know, uh, Bill Johnson's wife, Benny, um, I had to look this up. I don't just know it off the top of my head. I was trying to figure out why people had a problem with Bethel. She apparently wrote a blog or an article or something where she really dove into angelology, which there's some speculation in angelology. So, okay. And even, and somebody has said that, uh, Benny, uh, Benny Johnson participated in something called grave sucking, which grave sucking, the idea of that is that you are laying on um, uh, a grave, like a person has already been buried, and you're laying on the grave to try to suck up some of that person's anointing. Uh, that sounds very weird, and I think it would be very weird, but but Bill Johnson has made a public statement that they do not teach or condone grave-sucking. Um, so other than that, they're really just kind of a, a straightforward, charismatic church. Several years ago, there was some thought, uh, there were some videos flying around, I mean, of uh, there was like a glory cloud and some angel feathers and some gems from heaven. Um, that were starting to manifest in their services, and so people think that's pretty weird, which, frankly, it is weird. Um, but I just want to point out, at least from somebody who is marginally informed on these things, Bethel's not any weirder than any other charismatic church. Probably you just didn't know they were charismatic. And, and, I, and I guess I need you guys to crawl into my head to really understand where I'm coming from with this, because people will list off. You know when people are just incredulous about something, they'll start listing off all of the things that are they're offended by. And when people list off these things that they have a problem with with Bethel over, uh it's like, yeah, cuz they're charismatic. Uh so, you know, so here's one. The Johnsons are frequently criticized for their teachings, which often veers from suspect of outright heretical. A prime example is Bill Johnson's Christ is perfect theology, which claims God all, that 
it is always God's will to heal somebody. So Bill Johnson's getting railed on because it's he says that it's God's will to always heal somebody. You're not going to find a charismatic church that doesn't agree with that. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm looking at a list here. Uh, I don't want to call out the website, but I'm looking at a list here. Uh, yeah. They, in their school, what the school says is students will learn how to read, understand, and do the Bible, how to practice His presence, to witness, heal the sick, prophesy, preach, pray, cast out demons, and much more. Pretty charismatic standard stuff there. Um, so anyway, I'm not saying that they don't have a couple of weird things. Like they have people painting on stage, and, and it's unusual. But as far as their theology goes, they're pretty straightforward. And... The reason why I bring Bethel up and I harp on it so much, and gosh, I think I spent 10 minutes talking about Bethel. Well, is because, again, that's always the church that gets picked on in all of this. But again, I want to point out the majority, the vast majority right now of worship albums that are coming out are coming out of charismatic churches or are written by charismatic people. I just pulled up the top worship songs of of 2020. I'm I'm actively doing this right now. I try to be much more prepared than this, but I I've just pulled up uh The Blessing, Elevation Carry Job, Charismatic, Waymaker by Leland, Charismatic, King of Kings, Hill Hillsong Worship, Charismatic, Graves in the Gardens, Elevation, Charismatic, We the King, I don't know. Goodness of God, Bethel, Charismatic. I mean, it's just just where we are. It's just where we are right now. And uh, and so that's just kind of the world that we're living in. And so that brings me to the three things that we need to consider when we are vetting our songs. Um, I say all of that to get back to the point of theological importance because we do need to have a critical eye on the songs that we're singing. We do need to make sure that what we're singing aligns with the theology that we are teaching in our churches. So here are three things to consider and some ideas around all of that, because these are kind of levels. These are levels where people are going to start to get uncomfortable. The first one, are the words of the song theologically sound? This is our first stopping place. Are the words of the song theologically sound? If they're not, then get rid of it. Don't even consider it. Doesn't matter if it's popular. Doesn't matter if it's the most popular song. Doesn't matter if everybody is begging you to sing it. Doesn't matter if your worship leader wants to sing it. And if you're a worship leader, I would say that it doesn't even matter if your senior pastor wants you to sing it, because you are going to be held accountable for asking people to see, sing things that are theologically unsound. So if you don't feel comfortable calling it a worship song because the, the worship can't be accurate, or the worship can't be right if it's not accurate, then don't sing it. Boom. There you go. Solved that one for you. Uh, it's first and most important stop, regardless of how popular the song is. If it teaches falseness, then we can't ask our people to sing it. Because that's the responsibility of church leaders is our people are looking to us 
to make sure that we're not leading them into theologically dangerous waters. So anything that we're asking them to sing, we are asking them to sing because we trust that it is good for their worship. We trust that it is good for their prayer life. We trust that they are words that we want repeated over and over in their heads should the song get stuck there. It's going to lead them closer to God, make accurate declarations of God. Um, So this is a very important thing. The second thing to consider is... Um, are there ways to interpret the lyrics that are not theologically sound? Uh, I immediately am thinking of a song. This is an older song at this point. It's not like a hymn's old. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about some hymns here in a little bit. Uh, But it was one of the first um, Christian contemporary songs that I was familiar with called Blessed Be Your Name. I think Matt Redman came out with that. Blessed be your name, the land that is plentiful. I know I just wowed you guys with my singing voice. Uh, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want you guys, if you're listening in the car, to like jerk the wheel real quick and be like, "Wow, what a powerful voice!" So I pulled back for you. Um, but there's a there's a <laughs> there's a tag at the end of that song that says, "You give and take away. You give and take away." And that tag caused no small stir in some churches. Because we're talking about, blessed be the name of the Lord, you give and take away. Um, and so the, the way, there's a couple of ways to interpret that phrasing that has theological significance. And church leaders needed to wrestle with what to do with that song, because it was wildly popular. And this was back in a time when you weren't getting a new worship album every two weeks, like... It was hard to come by good worship music. There was like four guys writing stuff, and you just had to grab whatever they gave you. Um, And so this was a really good song otherwise, but that give and take away caused some issues. I will even tell you, despite the singing voice that you just heard from me moments ago, I was a worship leader when this song came out, and I had to struggle with it. Because this give and take away can mean a couple of things. It's from Job, first of all, um, but... God does not say of himself that he gives and takes away. Um, Somebody else says it about God. And when you look at the context of Job, there's a lot of things said about God that are not accurate. So that is something that you need to take into consideration. But one way to interpret this is God gives you blessings and then he'll take them away. And you need to be happy about whatever you have. Well, not everybody agrees with that theological position. A lot of people will lean heavily on something like uh, James 1.17, that uh, all good gifts come from above, um, the Father of lights, of which there is no shadow. All good gifts, um, and that God is a giver. He's not a taker. He's not going to take good things away from you. And even in the context of Job, God didn't take Job's health and kids and wealth. The devil did. Um, and, and so then some other people were trying to make sense or or really maybe even justify how do we use that terminology uh, or how do we use those words in a way that fits our theology. And so it was like, he gives blessings but takes away sin. Now that is a way to, that is a way to explain it, but that's probably not how Matt Redman originally added it into the song. That wasn't the intention. So this is just one of those examples of, is there a way to interpret lyrics that are not theologically sound, or at least not theologically in line with your church. Because I don't want to make a, a necessarily a call on that. I will tell you, 
though, since I brought it up, what I ultimately did with this song was either a, um, I, I took more of the, he, he gives blessings and takes away sin, um, idea, or I just didn't sing that part. Uh, but it was really hard not to sing that part cause it's just a really important part of the song. Um, but I would say if you run into a situation where you have a song that there are lyrics in it that can be interpreted in more than one way, and one of them's theologically sound and one of them's not, I think it, it is it is worth it to spend some time teaching it. Whether it's the worship leader who teaches it at the introduction of the song, whether it's the pastor that teaches it afterwards, I think it is helpful um, to find a time to actually teach what the theological position of the church is around that song. I think that it is very important to actually teach worship songs, not just teach people the melody, but teach what's the purpose of this song. What is the heart behind the writer's intention with this song? Um, What are things that we can focus on in the lyrics? How does this connect to Scripture? I think it's helpful to find these teaching moments every now and then uh, of, you know, Flow of service is also something that I care quite about, quite a bit about um, in the church that I pastor, uh, and so we need to be concise with all of these kinds of things. But giving people cues to aid them in worship is always going to be helpful. But now we get to our big question, our third thing to consider: Is the writer or the church of sound is of sound theology are they is the writer of the church and i just got to say this it's kind of a new thing where individuals aren't writing songs but churches are taking credit for it and i think that kind of goes to the music business uh where churches are become publishers um and uh and and so like church worship teams instead of an individual who built a team and they're working outside of one church um so it's kind of a new thing um, really, because before you really just had to pay attention to the theology of an individual, where now you do have to pay attention to the uh, the theology of the entire church, or at least the pastor, uh, and it adds a it does add a new layer of complication. Um, so this is this is really where we're at. Should should if if the words of the song are otherwise theologically good. If otherwise, the song is good, like if the song is good and the lyrics are good, should we care about the theology of the writer or the church where it started? Some people would say yes. Some people think uh, absolutely yes, because uh, really, honestly, a lot of it, um, is is the business side of it. Um, using, using, maybe you guys don't know this. Whenever a church sings uh, a song, somebody else's song, they have to report that to an organization. Almost every church uses something called CCLI, um, which I cannot tell you what CCLI stands for off the top of my head. Uh, but it's a reporting agency, and you send a report. Your worship leader should be sending a report to CCLI um, saying, we sang this song. More specifically, uh, we displayed the words to this song. And the writer of that song is going to get 
some royalties. So churches pay a fee to CCLI, and that allows them legally to sing any song listed in CCLI. Um, and when a church sings an artist's song, uh, they get a, they get a royalty fee for it. And the argument of singing a song from a writer or an organization that has bad theology isn't so much what's happening in the room during a church service. Will our people be able to worship to the song because it has good theology? Um, it's do we want to support financially a church that we disagree with or a person that we disagree with? That's really the big argument that I've ever heard around this. And so by not singing the song, you're essentially boycotting the church uh, because we don't want uh, churches with bad theology to um, get more money, you know, produce more whatever. It's like we just don't want to support them because they have uh, potentially hurtful theology. And I 100% understand this argument, and I 100% understand somebody wanting to take this position. My caution for anybody wanting to take this position is you need to be prepared to be consistent. You need to be consistent in doing the heavy lifting of study and research for every song that your church sings to make sure that every writer is sound in that every church is sound. Because what you'll probably find if you do a little bit of digging is that not all of the authors of the songs that we like to sing are as theologically aligned with us as we might hope they are. And this is why I brought up Bethel on the front end, because they are taking the brunt of this, they're getting picked on with this, and granted, they're probably a little more open with some of their charismatic beliefs than some of the other um, churches. But like Stephen Furtick, who's the pastor of of uh, Elevation, he's on TBN. Like that's charismatic one central. That's the mecca right there. That's that's the home. That's the mothership. Uh, so they're not hiding it. They're not hiding it either. But it's one of those things where if you're going to pick on Bethel, you got to pick on Hillsong, you got to pick on Elevation, you got to pick on a lot of people. And if you're not going to sing Bethel, then you have to be prepared to be consistent across the board, I feel like. Um, and here I did just a really quick study, a really quick search on this, and just some things off the top of my head that I know about uh, some origins of songs uh, that... I hope is just bringing some of this into a little bit of perspective. Horatio Spatford is the person who wrote It Is Well With My Soul, the hymn. This guy did not believe in hell or Satan. So do we need to, for the sake of theological soundness, no longer sing It Is Well With My Soul? Because in the church that I grew up, about once a month, this was the altar call song. Do we need to no longer sing It Is Well With My Soul because Horatio Spafford didn't believe in hell or Satan? Francis of Assisi, well-known Roman Catholic, wrote All Creatures of Our God and King. Well, if you don't believe with if you don't believe what Roman Catholicism teaches, do you need to no longer sing All Creatures of Our God and King? It's in the Baptist hymnal. 
I know that. And that's actually true. Roman Catholicism. Crown him with many crowns. Matthew Bridges. He was a Roman Catholic. I think he actually converted later. Um, speaking of Roman Catholics, Matt Marr, who sings Your Grace is Enough, a contemporary artist. He's Roman Catholic. Should we, should we not sing his stuff if you don't believe in the theology of Roman Catholics? Stephen Curtis Chapman goes to a Church of Christ church near uh, Nashville. At least he did at one point. A lot of Church of Christ churches uh, don't, don't have musical instrumentation during their services. If you have a theological disagreement with that, should you be listening to or, or singing any Stephen Curtis Chapman stuff? I know he doesn't do like straight-up worship stuff, but I think my point's being made. Uh, Robert Robinson wrote Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that hymn. He became a Unitarian, possibly even an atheist. And we could continue to go on and on and on about the authorship of songs, because this is the point that I suppose that I'm making. At what point have we, where does the line, where is the line in the sand where a theological difference is acceptable or not acceptable. Because if we're not careful, we're eventually going to get ourselves into a position where we're only singing songs that were written within our own churches. And maybe that's what you want to do. Maybe that's the goal that you have for yourself. Maybe you would even be a little more gracious with that and say we're only going to sing songs written within our denomination, but your circle is getting much smaller. And I'm certainly not going to get on to somebody if that's the position that they make, because again, I believe that theological correctness is of, of high importance. But I'm not sure if it's worth the effort to do a background check on every single person that has ever written a song if the words are theologically sound. If the song is theologically sound, does it matter if the author or the church and I do not agree theologically? Because we can start looking at some scripture where the source of the information wasn't nearly as important as was what was as what was being said. In particular, Balaam's donkey. Is it more important that a donkey spoke, or was it more important that the donkey told Balaam not to judge Israel? You know, this this is this is something that we that we have to consider is that if God has moved and a song has been produced that glorifies him, does it matter if the source is imperfect? Because I know that every single week when I get up and preach, one of my prayers is that any imperfections that I have are masked by God moving through me. And I would hope that that is true of the song. So if the song itself is good, just how far are we willing to go to cut songs out if the source disagrees with us theologically? Again, if you want to make that decision, 
absolutely, I will support that because you need to be in control of, of the theology that's being taught at your church. Pastors, we are all going to have to give an account one day to God on what was taught in our churches. It's something that we need to take very, very seriously. But my hope for you would that you would not have a knee-jerk reaction against a public outcry because somebody all of a sudden figured out that Bethel was charismatic, and that if you're going to take this position, you're going to take it because you are making theologically consistent choices. And so you're not going to sing Horatio Spafford. You're not going to sing Francis of Assisi. You're not going to sing Your Grace is Enough. You're, gonna, you're not going to sing any Elevation. You're not going to sing any Hillsong. You're not going to sing any Planet Shakers. You're not going to sing any Belonging Company. You're not going to sing any Carrie Job. And I'm sure that there are more artists out there that prefer to keep their theology to themselves because they know that there's judgment around it, but I am sure that there are more artists out there that are charismatic or that have theo theological positions that you disagree with or uh, something along those lines. So that's my point. Can a, can a Christian worship God using music from a church with unbiblical teachings? Absolutely. I think you can worship God in a lot of instances. I think you can worship God in secular songs. I think you can worship God uh, through books that uh, are secular books. I think you can find ways to worship God in a lot of instances, but I think it is much easier to worship God through a song that is about him, for him, and from him. And so if the lyrics are theologically sound and we're only asking our people to see, sing things that we agree with theologically— and we've spent the time to teach through anything that might be theologically misinterpreted, then my opinion on this is that that's good enough. Now, if you don't want to support a church financially, I get that. If you want to be theologically consistent and start knocking off a lot of places because they disagree with you theologically, I get that too. I totally get that. I would just hope that you're being consistent. But really, I suppose the thing that I, my hope is, is that you can find a way to continue allowing new and refreshing songs into the lives of your people, giving them the words that they need to express what's happening in their heart, creating moments in your services that allow them to cry out if they are in pain or to celebrate or if they are in joy. Um, and that you are protecting them theologically. So, can a Christian worship God using music from a church with unbiblical teachings? Yes, they can. Am I taking the stance that any of the churches that I've mentioned in this podcast or the people that I have mentioned in this podcast have unbiblical teachings? No, I am not. I am not making that claim at all. I am simply pointing out some observations— and some things that I think that I know about some things that I have opinions on. Can a Christian worship God using music from a church with which they disagree theologically? Yes, I think that they can, as long as the song itself is theologically sound. This has been the church question for today. 
If you would like to have your church question featured on the podcast, you can email it to questions at donmckeg.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time, be blessed, and we'll catch you later. Thank you.